everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I have a very familiar guest host, co-host, whatever you want to call him. He has been on probably, I don't know, five or six, I lost count a long time ago, David. This is David with Nurse Papa. You guys are familiar with him. Not only has he guest host, but I talk about him just about every single week, which I apologize, David. You're, you're embarrassing me, Tina. I'm sorry. It seems like it just comes up and I'm always saying, Nurse Papa this and Nurse Papa that. <laughs> so, of course, we have a, we've got a, a very interesting bad nurse story, which is actually a bad doctor story to talk about today. And we have an extremely interesting and you guys are going to be blown away by our good nurse story. Um, it's actually, we're going to have an interview that I'm going to play. And then David and I are going to discuss her. And I can't wait to, to get to talk about her. But before that, I have had you on here so many times. We've talked, I've, I've mentioned you so many times. I thought I would just introduce a little bit about your podcast and just let our listeners know what exactly Nurse Papa is. What, what is Nurse Papa? Just, to, just sort of briefly explain that. To oh, well, listeners. Nurse Papa is a podcast from the perspective of a father and pediatric oncology nurse. But in the latest episode, I thought I would do something a little bit different. I know that your listeners are very much into true crime stories. Mm -hmm. So in the latest episode of Nurse Papa, I tell a very true story that happened to me in the hospital. <laughs> it's not a crime of passion or mm -hmm. a crime of greed, mm -hmm. but rather a, the much more pedestrian crime of one person opening their gigantic mouth at the worst possible time. And Tina, mm -hmm. that person was me. It's hard to believe, I know. I know. <laughs> it was incredibly awkward, but somehow it led me to a place of understanding and redemption. You guys, I'm, and one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to stop and, and sort of tell you about David's podcast, or sort of remind you, if you haven't gone to find the podcast, to sort of remind you to do that, because... It's a very clever. I, they're one of the things that I love about David is when he first approached me uh, back, I don't even know when, over a year ago, it was because of the book that he was writing. And he sent me the book and I, I, I read it and fell in love with it right away. And not only just the book, but just fell in love with his writing style. I love, I just love a good writer. I could just read anything if it's written well. And I, I'd love to read the words. I'm very, very much, I don't know. I just like reading words that someone is just very talented at, you know, putting them together in a way that's just creative and, I don't know, interesting to listen to or hear. And so his podcast is like that because he writes it out, unlike me, where I just ramble. He actually puts thought into the way he says everything. And so it's very enjoyable. And the most recent episode that I listened to, it's called Awkward Words in an Elevator. And it, I literally, they're, they're really short little like, you know, 15 minute or less episodes generally. And especially this last one that really kind of takes you on a little emotional roller coaster. And you're going to really enjoy it, I promise. It's like you start out thinking, oh my gosh, and then you go, oh gosh, and then you go, oh, okay, and then you go, oh gosh. It's like the whole time. <laughs> so I really want you to listen to it. I'm going to play a little snippet just so you can hear a little sample of it. Nurse Papa is brought to you by Just Some Podcast Media. Dun, da, da, da. <laughs> Nurses, probably more than any other group of people, are accustomed to encountering death and pain. Although we are certainly affected by the suffering of others, our job calls for a measure of detachment, the ability to move forward without faltering. The traumas we experience here on this pediatric oncology unit are sometimes compartmentalized because it is a helpful device to make it through a hard shift and a challenging career. Such is the diversity of what we have come to call the human experience 
and the perverse humor to be found in the darkest of places. <laughs> in any case, I've come to expect and accept that grief is a comfortable bedfellow to laughter, and that the cruel joke is often on me. <laughs> Whether by intention or unconscious reframing, humor is most often the vehicle upon which we nurses navigate the uncommon horror stories which seem to be written for our eyes alone. Dark, inappropriate, jaded humor, shot casually from the clever hip and left to ricochet from wall to wall until it finds its mark. Another nurse, weary from the day and in dire need of an emotional pick-me-up. David, where can they find the podcast if they want to go actually listen to the whole thing? I mean, Tina, they can find this podcast, Nurse Papa, on their favorite podcast platform. Just look up Nurse Papa and it will just jump out right to you. It'll be right there. So you guys go and listen to that episode and listen to all of them. There's just They're very well produced for one thing. David does such a good job just putting it together and puts so much energy and time into it. So I just really want to encourage you to go listen to that and then give him some feedback, some positive feedback. I should probably start saying that about my, my own podcast. Yeah, because feedback <laughs> can come in so many forms, can't it? Yeah. Just if you got negative feedback, send me an email about that one. Don't necessarily put it on Apple or, you know, on iTunes. I mean, I guess if you really want to, you can, but. Yeah, you uh, be you listeners, but you know, be kind. Yeah, please. Please. So I guess we can get started on our bad doctor story. This week's story, and it, I always feel so guilty. And week after week, as I do bad doctor stories, I always say I'm not going to apologize anymore for doing for picking on doctors because, I, but I still have this thing in in me that feels bad. So anyway, having said that, it is another bad song. I mean, I don't think you're picking on the doctors. You know? No, I think you're I don't just, mean to. Yeah, you're just telling a story, and you mm -hmm. know they did the deed. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't want it to come across like, well, it's called Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and yet every week she has a doctor. Should it's we consider renaming the show to Bad Doctor, <laughs> Good Nurse? No, gosh, no, that's <laughs> terrible. Uh, of course, there are way more good doctors than bad. There's you know, just a, a few bad apples, and those are the ones that we tend to highlight here on Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I'm kidding. So this is the story of Dr. Esther Wadley. Dr. Wadley was married in Southern California to Josh in 1995. This goes back a, a few years. It was a, a beautiful of, wedding. It really was. Was it? Do you remember it? You remember yeah. it well. <laughs> a lot of our listeners are on the younger side, and so many of them are just going, oh my God, 1995. Good Lord, because it was probably before they were born. <laughs> so they were married in Southern California in 1995 and moved in together quite quickly. Esther graduated from medical school in 1996, and then they moved to Josh's home state of, of Missouri. Step down or step up from California? What do you think? Oh, gosh. Let's say, let's call it a sidestep. <laughs> sidestep. A lateral move <laughs> from California to Missouri. Mm -hmm. So Esther graduated from medical school. They moved to Missouri. In 1997, they got married, bought a house, had a baby. Her name was Crystal. He said... He said that she wanted to return to work after the birth of their daughter. She said that Josh felt like he shouldn't have to work because he was married to a doctor who could make more money than him. And so it sounds like there was a little back and forth, which is a little foreshadowing for us uh, yeah. of things to come. And it's interesting how the gender roles are reversed mm -hmm. in this. It's mm -hmm. um, typically you hear stories where the female and male roles are reversed. 
So it's definitely setting up a dynamic. Yes, and it, it's it's interesting because it the way that that's put, just without even thinking about how the story progresses, um, it sounds like Esther is having to explain why she was working, which is frustrating as a female uh, because it seems like men don't have to explain why they are working and having a family and have a family. It's like, well, because I have to provide for my family, but for women... It's like, why are you working and not taking home care of your children? Well, because, you know, it, it just almost seems like she was having to explain that. And Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that men do not have to explain. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I agree yeah. with you. So either way, Esther became the breadwinner for the family and relied on her parents for additional financial support, which is interesting because you would think even if it was a single family inc- or a single income family, being a doctor, that that wouldn't be a problem. But I just feel like it doesn't matter how much money you make. You could have two doctors, two surgeons in a family making, you know, four or five hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever or more. And it wouldn't matter. You can make what you can t- have your expenses exceed what your income, no matter yeah. how much you make. I mean, more money, more problems. But also, <laughs> I think doctors don't make as much money as they once did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you can be a nurse and work a lot of overtime and probably make a lot more money than most doctors these days. Yeah. And it depends on what kind of doctor, you know, I think uh, yeah. probably family medicine, they probably don't, you know, they make it as a surgeon, you know, they d- certainly make a lot of money. Yeah. I think Esther should have been a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. You think so? <laughs> she would have been bringing home the bucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, her father explained that she was constantly working to keep up with the bills. And so I guess that's why they felt like they needed to help them financially. By 2001, she was just burnt out. And then in 2002, Esther was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which is really sad and unfortunate. And it just yeah. almost seems like a lot of the things that happened going forward probably progressed because of, you know, that mental decline. It's just, it's sad to kind of see the stress and the strain that was put put on her. And if she was having this this problem, it was probably compounded and really yeah. unfortunate. I mean, something like bipolar disorder doesn't just happen to a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm guessing that she was suffering from the symptoms of bipolar disease um, mm-hmm. for a long time. And it really probably came to a difficult point when she was experiencing lots of stress, when she mm-hmm. could no longer manage her, you know, mental disorder and her kind of distressed life. Yeah. So then uh, she got a new job working for a prison as a contract doctor. But that ended abruptly because she was having an affair with an inmate. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> she told Josh it was because the prison thought it was unsafe for her to be around male inmates well you know it's probably it's actually true it was unsafe for her to be around male inmates it was unsafe for them it sounds like she sounds like she was a predator yeah so her parents then purchased a clinic for her to run as her own it's the, her parents just seem like i'm they're sorry really, but they seem really a little keeping bit the, the boat yeah. straight here <laughs> mm. uh the word enable is kind of popping around my brain yeah um that's sort of how that usually works. You know, if you just keep rescuing someone, um, they'll just keep on making the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people need to hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. 
in order to uh, change their lives. Yes. So December 2002, police responded to a domestic dispute at the couple's house. She said that she had stayed the night at a friend's house after having after being at a Christmas party. And then a fight broke out when she get, went home the next day. She also alleged that Josh hit her during that altercation. His side of the story was that he actually didn't ever hit her and that she told him that she spent the previous night with another man. So the next day, she filed for divorce, emptied the house, and cut Josh off financially. Wow. That was, I mean, that was a, a quick move the next mm. day. <laughs> I know. Which, you know, it, it sounds abrupt, but I'm sure all of this was... Yeah. Know, I mean, much like her bipolar disorder, she was probably... They were probably having problems for a long time. Exactly. Uh, a bitter custody battle followed. As you can imagine, Josh was given uh, 90% custody. According to Esther's parents, Josh continuously threatened her. Her friends said he was upset about having to return to work. And, and then in 2003, the clinic was forced to close due to a sting operation by the DEA, finding that Esther was illegally prescribing pain medication. So she took a plea deal of four counts of illegally prescribing narcotics, which gave her five years probation. And she had to surrender her license to practice medicine. Yeah, this is like one of those movies where the character mm -hmm. just keeps making horrible decisions and you can't help but not look <laughs> mm. and see her go down. I know. It's so unfortunate. It's someone who has all this potential for for her to obviously be able to go to, to medical school and graduate and practice medicine. And then after this happened, she took a job at Taco Bell. Which is the true just low point of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's sad. Uh, and it's not, not that working at Taco Bell is a terrible thing. It's just that when you know that someone has put so much into, I've talked about before on this podcast, how much doctors have to sacrifice to go to medical school, you know, going to uh, four years of undergraduate school and then four years of medical school and the residency and all that they have to put into becoming a medical doctor um, and then to not be able to use any of that education whatsoever. Yeah. We, well, we, and we shouldn't disparage Taco Bell because, I mean, even though it's probably not very healthy for you, it is mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think yeah. um, it, it was about 90% of my nutrition throughout most of high school. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's good. It's good food. Of, yeah. It's, there are options on their menu that, yes. you, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to overeat and you don't have to pick the worst thing just like anywhere else you know you can go to a five-star restaurant that has amazing gourmet chefs and eat really unhealthy food oh, yeah. it's it's you can go to taco bell and and pick you know some sort of like grilled chicken quesadilla or something and not and just eat that and nothing else and water and you're you're okay. Sodium content aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if this is happening or it has already happened, but mm -hmm. I think your listeners need to hear about this. Yeah. Is that Taco Bell perhaps will be discontinuing the seven layer burrito if that has not already happened, which mm -hmm. is the true travesty of this story. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm the serious. Seven layer, the seven layer burrito is going away. It might be, or I might have just made that up. I don't know, Tina. You just made it up. No, I think that I, I heard something about that. <laughs> oh, that's sad. I think we should start a petition or something. Everybody write to your senators. Write to your senators. 
<laughs> you imagine the senators opening up the letters going, why are we getting all these letters about Taco Bell? <laughs> if it is still being served, order a seven-layer burrito, put it in a box, and oh, send no. it to your senator. We just, we got to stop this, people. We got to stop it. <laughs> oh, got to make it right. Uh, I love it. Well, in 2007, a man by the name of Paul Bell called the FBI. Now, this is unrelated to Taco Bell. This is completely unrelated. I mean, he might have eaten at Taco Bell on that day. He's just not related to Taco Bell. He's not. He's, he considered naming his son Taco, but um, I don't know. It was awkward. <laughs> Somebody would do that with a last Somebody name Bell. Somebody would do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul Bell called the FBI about his former doctor, Esther. He told them that she asked him to find a hitman to kill her husband. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Esther has definitely spiraled at this point. He yes. said he said she ran into him at the Christian Service Center, and she there asked him to do her a favor. And then on October 11, 2007, she allegedly went to Paul's house to lay out a plan to kill Josh so she could get full custody. She then paid him $200. That's some big money. Yeah. Tina, is that where you go to find your um, ex-husband assassins at the Christian Service Center? <laughs> does that seem like a good place to find a, a, an accomplished killer? It doesn't. It, it sounds does like a horrible place to go to do so anything like that illegal if you're if you're looking to do something illegal. Also, I would not recommend looking for anyone to kill anyone. <laughs> Just I mean, so you know. that makes sense. You're right. <laughs> you should definitely not hire anybody to kill your husband. Yeah. You should definitely not do it at the Christian Service Center mm -hmm. or or Taco Bell, for that matter. Yeah, just don't do it at all. Don't, don't do it. And, and, you know, we're not in the business of giving advice on this podcast. We don't do that. But I always we're feel not, like no, okay. there are little gems uh, that you could take away from each story. Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly one of them. That yeah. is absolutely one of them. I feel like we might have just we might have just helped somebody out really who mm -hmm. really needed to hear that. Yeah. If not if you don't learn anything else from this podcast, you should learn that <laughs> people generally get caught doing stupid things like this. Yes. So just I think that's the biggest take home it. message from your podcast. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Look at how many stories. There can't be that many people who attempt to do these kind of stupid things and yet all these people get caught. So the chances of you getting caught are probably pretty darn good. And I would just recommend if you're thinking about doing something dumb and illegal, especially if it involves hurting someone else, if you don't have the morals, if you don't have the integrity and this the character of someone who would just not who wouldn't do something like that, at least have the sense to know that you're probably going to get caught. So just yeah. don't do it. You don't want to end up on good news, bad news someday. Mm -mm. You don't. <laughs> Not on this side of it anyway. There is another yeah. side that, yeah, you, you well, yeah. On the good nurse side, that's a that's a great place to be. And I love talking about those people, but we're not there right now. No, not yet. So Paul Bell agreed to a lie detector test and provided handwritten notes that gave details about Josh along with a photo of him. It's kind of like, well, how would I know all of these things about her husband or her ex-husband? If it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. So the authorities then had Paul call Esther on a recorded line again. This stuff this stuff happens so frequently. It just blows my mind that people don't understand that this kind of thing happens. There are you know do you guys know that you can record conversations on on phones? 
Why are you talking to each other about doing illegal <laughs> things on phones? You guys are nuts. Yeah, you should so, meet in person in like an alleyway <laughs> behind the Taco Bell, just someplace where there will be no recording devices. <laughs> yeah. So they then arranged a meeting to try and catch Esther making arrangements. So, however, none of the conversation was recorded due to a technical issue. Now, there's always that that could happen. Yeah, the so, FBI just sometimes drop the ball, drops the ball. Yes. Yes, sometimes things happen, as we know, with, don't we, David, with technical things. Things oh, don't always oh, work the way they're supposed yes, to. Yes, we know mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. So, October 23rd, Josh received a call from the State Highway Patrol and was told they were coming to pick him up. Can you imagine getting that phone call and you're like, why? <laughs> what I do? <laughs> exactly right. Mm-hmm. Once he got in the car, the officers told him that Esther had attempted to hire a hitman. Josh's response to this I just, I, you know, in reading the story, I was just like, oh my gosh, because not Josh doesn't go, what? You're kidding me. No, How she could didn't. She? He didn't. He's just like, she did this once before. He said she had attempted to have a man that she had an affair with at the prison kill him and that he had been shot at previously. No big deal. Yeah. But the local police didn't take a report. He got shot at. The man got shot at. And apparently he ducked and missed. I don't know how it (laughs) happened. But the police are just like, "Mm, sure, right. Okay, right. Yeah, I'll probably, I don't have to write this down. I'll remember it. (laughs) Let's go to Taco Bell and get some food, all right? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. I feel like Taco Bell is getting lots of free press here. I know. Oh, my God. All right. It's okay. The police repeatedly tried to get Esther to, quote, close the deal on the hit, but she never agreed to transfer money or or specifically use the words kill or murder. So mm-hmm. you guys just remember, if you don't use those <laughs> two words, the only two words you have to use, if you use those two words, you're done for. Yes. Instead, you should say something like this. Um, I'd like you to relocate my husband from the plane of the living to the plane <laughs> of the not living. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently you're in the clear if that's yeah. what you, if that's how you word it. So, but she since she was never precise on what she really wanted to do or quote have or actually have done, um, she called it off completely. Police arrested Esther for conspiracy for conspiracy to commit murder on December third, two thousand seven. Confused. Yeah, I mean, apparently she did enough to get caught. Right. So. Her arrest was a breach of her probation. So apparently, if you get arrested, that's a violation of probation. I mean, well, I didn't she know was that. also she was on probation for um, prescribe illegally prescribing medication, right? So that's what she's right. So she's on probation, and if you get arrested for anything, not just for um, doing it again, yeah, yeah, that is a violation of probation. So she was not allowed bail because of that. Her trial started a year later. And in early December uh, 2008, and her defense attorney claimed that it was a misunderstanding and miscommunication with Paul Bell and that Sergeant Rogers, who had posed as the hitman, had acted in a solicitous nature. So basically, that's not fair. He talked me into it. I mean, he made it yeah. sound so good, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I, I mean, because how I, I always wonder when they're just like, uh, I would have never thought, again, that, that is a part of the law, I guess, and maybe depending on what state you're in, that, you know, the police can't come and try to entice you into, into breaking the law and then arrest you for it. No, it's, uh, it's called entrapment. Right. 
So you can't do that, but... It doesn't sound like what's happening here. No, it doesn't, because this man is saying, she wants to hire me, she asked me. And so to me, that's not quite the same thing as completely approaching her for no reason whatsoever, trying to entrap her into you know committing a, a crime. But yeah, I don't know. And it's hard to see that Paul Bell would have any reason to be lying about this. So her defense attorney never actually called Sergeant Rogers to the stand because they must have felt like her saying that she didn't do it uh, was enough to clear her. And she didn't testify on her own behalf. She took the fifth. Right. She just like, uh, it's enough for me to be, be sitting here and saying I'm not guilty. And that should be uh, that should be sufficient for you to find me not guilty. <laughs> but the judge did not see it her way, did she? Mm-mm. No. So... The jury found her guilty, and the judge gave her the maximum sentence of 15 years. And what the judge said is, you know, the fact that you're a doctor is you are held to a higher standard. Yeah. And you took an oath to protect life, and you broke, you not only, you know, did you do all this stuff, but you are a doctor, and you went against that oath that you took. Did we take that oath as nurses? So there are some people who take an oath when they graduate nursing school like they do that what do they call pinning ceremony uh-huh my school didn't we didn't have a pinning ceremony okay or but i think some people do so i did not actually take an oath so that means we're not held to a higher standard no apparently not i hold myself to a higher standard though understood <laughs> so <laughs> josh has since remarried and had at least one other child with his new wife Crystal, their child that they had together, recently graduated from college and is close with her father's family. Her social media only makes one mention of her mom, who says she, quote, went crazy when she was 10. Um, And there's not any really updated information on Esther. However, if she were to serve her entire sentence, she would be out by 2024. Coming up. mm -hmm, Current records do not show any completed sentences or appeals, despite there being grounds for one. And I wonder, you know, with COVID, a lot of prisoners got released last year because of, you know, trying to get rid of, you know, a lot of inmates, you know, the whole close proximity thing. So I don't know. I wonder if she got released. Uh, Esther might be working in your local Taco Bell. She may be. And I guess that does it for our bad doctor story. That was pretty bad, Tina. It was pretty bad. (laughs) All the way around. Where do you get these stories, Tina? That one came from Snapped episode. Sometimes I'll just, because I love watching those shows. I'm just addicted to them. Uh-huh. It's, it's so funny because people are like, how do you watch that? How do you sleep at night? I'm like, watching true crime shows. <laughs> <laughs> I fall asleep to people killing each other. I know. I sleep like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so our good nurse story for this week is um, one that I'm really excited about. This, she's really an amazing person and has accomplished so much in her lifetime. And she's going to be featured on the Memorial Day concert in Washington, D.C. that they have every year. And so that will be on PBS. That's going to be aired on PBS. That's amazing. And so Diane Carlson Evans, is she's going to be featured on the National Memorial Day concert that will be aired on PBS, and that is on May 30th, 2021. That's obviously this year, and 8 p.m. Eastern time is when it will be airing. We're going to do a little interview 
with her and then David and I will come back and and discuss what we think about it. Can't wait. So Diane Carlson Evans is our good nurse story this week. She is a former nurse in the United States Army who served in the Vietnam War and then many years later founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial that's located at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. That sounds so crazy. She actually initiated and led the effort to completion. And her story is going to be featured during the National Memorial Concert on PBS on May 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern. She wrote a book that you guys are going to be so impressed to hear about. I cannot wait to talk about it with her. And I'm thrilled to have the privilege of getting to speak with her today and feature her as our good nurse story. Diane, welcome. And thank you so much for being on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Tina. Always a pleasure to talk about nurses. Yes, absolutely. And we we love good nurses on this show. We talk about them every single week and we, we just can't get enough of it. And you fit this segment so well. And I'm just so, so proud of you and your accomplishments. I guess we can just start off with some background about you. Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. Well, I grew up on a dairy farm in a small agricultural community in Minnesota, Buffalo, Minnesota. And I have to start out by saying my mother was a registered nurse and she was the most influential person in my life as, as a small girl growing up and watching her back in those days put on her white nylons, her white shoes, her white uniform, her white nursing hat, (laughs) and looking as clean and professional as you can imagine back in the day, and getting in the car and leaving us kids home alone. And off to the hospital she went. She loved her work. And my sister and I in particular, I had four brothers and a sister, we didn't want mom to go to work. We wanted her to stay home with us. And our dad was a dairy farmer. So dad was always home. We never had a babysitter all the years we grew up. Even though mom was a working mom, dad was home with the cows and with us. And mom said, well, we would say, do you have to go to work? And she would say, girls, I love my work. I love going to work. And so she was just a beautiful role model. She was the quintessential, I think, professional nurse. So I begged her to allow me to go to work with her. And back in the day, because she was the head nurse, she could get by with that. And I would go sit in the nurse's station (laughs) as a little girl and watch these white legs Mm. moving around. So, yeah, I grew up with a nurse. I wanted to be a nurse. And um, that's where it started. I love it. I love it so much. It's one thing to watch nurses and see your mother and want to be a nurse. It's a whole other thing, I feel like, to actually look to go to a war and to go into a war zone. Can you tell our listeners, because I was absolutely floored by your story and how you actually got to serve in the war. Can you tell our listeners how that came about? I can. So when I was 15... I asked mom if I could work at the hospital. Mom, can I get a job? Well, of course, I landed a job. And and now I'm just, you know, uh, carrying water and bedpans and that kind of thing. I loved it. I knew that I wanted to be a nurse. Well, in our small hospital, it was um, near a train track. Back in the day, there was a lot of drunk driving. And we had lakes. This is Minnesota. The local drownings came into the emergency room. Mom 
would say to me, Diane, come and help me. She took me everywhere in the hospital. And back then, the head nurse on her shift, she went to the ER. She went to deliver a baby. She went back up to her ward to take care of pre-op, post-op. She went to every specialty in the hospital. She started all the IVs. So I watched her. And car accidents would come in. And with children who had, there weren't seatbelts back then. And then when I went to nurses training in Minneapolis, I wanted to do my internship. We were allowed to choose where we wanted to spend three months in our senior year. I spent three months at the VA hospital. Loved it. I'm taking care of vets, home from the war. And I loved it. I loved taking care of them. Then I wanted three months in Hennepin County General. Oh my gosh, that was like the Saturday night specials, the stabbings, the gunshot wounds, domestic abuse. I kind of had a taste of everything. And I was preparing myself for the Army. I wanted to join the Army Nurse Corps. I was going to be an Army nurse and I wanted to go to Vietnam. And so in my own young sort of idealistic, like, I want to be an army nurse, but I better prepare myself. This isn't going to be pretty. My 4-H buddies, the farm boys all around me were being drafted. And my brother was drafted. And I had an older brother already in the airborne. So boys had to serve. And why shouldn't we, us women, us girls, girls, you know, I was a girl at the time, really. And it's like, why shouldn't girls have to serve? I think that sense of equality and that sense of, well, if my brothers have to go, why shouldn't I? Especially as a nurse, I wouldn't be carrying a gun. I didn't want to carry a gun. I didn't want to be an infantry officer like these women that I just am so proud of today that these women warriors, that the specialties, the uh, military has opened up to women in all kinds of opportunities that we didn't have, but I had the opportunity to be a nurse. So I was privileged, and it was a privilege to serve a year in Vietnam. But what I wasn't prepared for, Tina, nothing prepares you for war. Nothing that us nurses do uh, stateside or in other arenas that we find ourselves prepare us for. So many young, and then it was many young men, 18, 19-year-old draftees, coming in with these horrific wounds. And it wasn't the wounds so much that, that bothered me. I, could, I, I quickly adapted. We had, of course, landmines and, of course, then the weaponry, the M16, that when you think of a through-and-through gunshot wound. Well, we had a few of those, but (laughs) mostly it was blast injuries to the torso, missing limbs, missing eyes, missing legs, sometimes all four limbs, sometimes both eyes, the disfigurement. And the hard part really was the futility and the anguish for them, The, the, the tragedy that these young boys would never be the same. And, and then wondering why. Why are they suffering? Why are they dying? We wanted our country to give us a reason, a purpose, a mission, like World War II had Hitler. So, you know, you had, well, there's, we have to fight this war because there's an enemy. And that enemy was very clear. In Vietnam, we really didn't know who our enemy was. And as the war became more unpopular, 
it became harder for us nurses to rationalize that, well, we're going to win this war and we're doing it for all the right reasons. And, but the right reasons never reached us. And when we couldn't save a young soldier's life through all the means that we had at the time, um, and actually we did a pretty darn good job, the save rate, we saved if a soldier or airman or marine or you know any, any of our casualties, whatever corps they were serving in, came to our hospital within that first hour, we called it the golden hour. We saved 98% of them who came in. That was a huge save rate compared to Korea and World War II. Why? Because of the rapid helicopter air ambulance, the dust off. Those chopper pilots were fearless. Doesn't mean they weren't afraid. Of course they were. But they went into the most horrific and dangerous areas to get those wounded soldiers out because that was their job. They brought them to us and we took over. That was our job. And we had to measure up in whatever way we could. But back then, what you need immediately is, you know, getting the cut downs in and getting those IVs in and preventing shock and the albumin albumin, and doing triage and deciding who's going to go to the operating room first and the whole team, we were a team. And, and the number one person in that team was our soldier, was our casualty to save his life. What we were lacking, and maybe even lacking today, are resources and personnel. We did not have enough nurses on duty. We faced snake bites. We faced, Vietnam was a jungle. We had tiger with several patients when I was in the jungle at Pleiku, up Central Highlands, up near the Cambodian border. Just my hospital was a standard evacuation hospital, 400 beds. It was always full in 1969. And the patients came to us. We did everything we could to stabilize them. And then we evacuated them out on the air evac chain to the next best place for their recovery where that might be. In the meantime, we're not just seeing casualties from bullets flying around and shrapnel and landmines and punji stick wounds and all of that, but tigers attacked our soldiers. And there are some names on the wall from those young men who died. Not a bullet, but, and you know, our nurses saw that in our emergency rooms. And and then not only that, we're being rocketed and mortared. I can't even imagine all of the things that you're describing and then on top of that, dealing with that, that sort of thing. Well, th- then I'll talk a little bit about how nurses uh, deal with uh, our emotions. And when we are faced with uh, large numbers of casualties coming in and and it's it's tragic. It's sad to see so many young men suffering and 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 then getting to work and just doing our job. And that's what we do. And I can tell you, when you have that many patients and you're working 12, 14 hours every single day, and if we were lucky, we got a day off six days a week, you develop your skills within a month. You're a 22-year-old nurse and you're acting like you, you've been nursing since 
you know, for 20 years, because you have done, you know, you have started so many IVs and done so much and dressing changes and um, debridements of the, of the burns. I did work in the burn unit for over a month. And and that was, that was stressful. That was hard. So many of them were children who had been in villages and due to the Geneva convention, supposedly we take care of the locals, the indigenous people, the local people, if they've been injured in the crossfires of war. Well, when we dropped bombs on those villages, yes, we injured a lot of people in the crossfire. And all of a sudden now mixed in with our GIs, our guys, we have women and children and we're dealing, nobody told us we were going there to also take care of them. And I was not a pediatric nurse. My MOS was med surge. I didn't know how to deal with pediatric burns and we just learned quickly. You just have to step up. But now I'll give you one night. I think that maybe the best way, the most succinct way I can describe this is take you back to Vietnam with me one night. So this is one night in Vietnam, and then you can multiply that. But so we're having mass casualties. The choppers are coming in, and you can hear a gaggle of them. And if we heard one helicopter, nobody panicked. That was a few patients coming in, and that was pretty frequent. If two choppers came in, oh, we could handle that, right? Now, it was one, it was like one chopper, I called them a gaggle, like a gaggle of geese, choppers coming in and landing and taking off and landing and taking off one after another. We knew this was trouble. So we're all on deck, all hands are on deck. We're all, you know, we're out of our beds, we're out of our sleeping, we're getting called in. And uh, I open up a ward that's an empty ward that's just for mass casualties. So we're just getting started. And then all hell breaks loose, the red alert siren. The red alert siren, we know we're going to have a siren because we're hearing incoming. And our SOP, standard operating procedure, military jargon, we grab our helmet and our flak jacket, we put it on and zip up our flak jacket. And the first thing we do is we get all of our patients under the bed. That's our protection, under the bed. Well, the guys who are hooked up to the ventilator and have tubes everywhere, tracheotomies, you name it, chest tubes, they're already on the floor. They know what to do. <laughs> it's like we're out when they're out in the jungle, they're on, they're on the ground when they have it, when they're being attacked. So, but now their IVs are coming apart. We have connected IVs, long connectors, so that if that happens, there's plenty of room for them to crawl under their beds. Well, some of them are getting pulled apart. So I'm looking at every single patient now making sure they're connected to their IV, the blood lines, when they come apart, there's blood going everywhere, putting those blood lines back together. And then the guys who cannot get under their bed because they are hooked up to the ventilator and have the trach, we put mattresses on top of them. And that's their protection. It seems laughable, but that's what we did. Well, this little Montagnard girl who had a circumferential burn from napalm who probably wasn't going to live anyway. She started screaming because she's terrified. She's hearing incoming. She's hearing the noises that she heard when the bombs dropped on her village. Her parents were killed, or we thought they were because they didn't come to the hospital. There was a mama-san who cleaned our, scrubbed our floors, and that mama-san would communicate with this little girl. We were all that little girl had. So I... I couldn't put her under the bed. She had a burn. 
burnt. She was burned, and I couldn't put a mattress on top of the poor little girl. So she's screaming. The there's shrapnel flying around now. With the thuds of the rock thud, big thuds. The red alert siren is screaming. This is what it sounds. This is the sounds, and all hell breaks loose. And now when all the patients are either under their beds or covered with mattresses, I go to the little girl. And I, all I could do was hold her hand. Her hand had not been burned. And then I held her hand and I crawled under her crib. And when, when people say that women shouldn't be in a combat zone because the men will be rushing around protecting the women and the men won't get anything done, because they're just protecting the women because we're just a bunch of shrinking violets, right? And and years later, when people were saying, when women were going to Iraq and Afghanistan, oh, women should be in combat. They're not strong enough. They're just going to, you know, (laughs) I'm thinking, hey, what's wrong with that picture? Nurses in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. Korea, World War II, the Civil War, you take us back, Mm -hmm. time eternity. Where are we? We're the ones taking care of the men. We're protecting them. In Vietnam, that was our job, was to protect the men. I went for cover after everybody else was covered. And then I went under that crib, and I held her hand. And Tina, she was screaming. And she, that little girl, screamed herself to death. She died. That's how she died. And it's very upsetting to the wounded patients, these men, because a little girl is crying. And, and it reminds them of home, their sister. Their, it was just such a nightmare. And so when I came yeah. home from Vietnam, now your listeners as nurses, you're going to relate to this. You've had times at work where it's just so surreal, like with today with COVID deaths. And there's so many, I think, similarities to what uh, nurses, men and women, of course, are experiencing with the amount of death and dying. And, you know, just give, uh, you know, you're putting yourself at risk. Maybe the nurses today aren't being rocketed and mortared, but the risk of their own health and getting COVID, their personal health, the stress that they're dealing with. And I just relate to the nurses today, except for one thing. They have it harder than we did in Vietnam because nurses in hospitals today, at the end of their shift, they have to go home to their children if they have them or their loved ones or their spouses. They go home to responsibilities. They go home and they have to make dinner and do homework. We nurses in Vietnam, we went back to our hooches and fell into our beds and fell asleep and got up the next morning or the next night for our shift but we didn't have to go home and face family responsibilities. I don't know if I could, I couldn't have done it, but that's just one night in Vietnam to, to kind of give you a picture of what it was like for combat nurses. And, and people have said, how did you do it day in and day out for 365 days? And I said, well, we just shut down. It wasn't about us. It wasn't about us. It was about that patient. We never gave up on a patient, ever. We couldn't. They were, they were all we had. And we had to measure up. 
And we shut down our emotions. I know I did. I became a robot. I went to the next, to the next, to the next. I was good at, like all the nurses, we got good at what we were doing, the physical part of it. But the emotional part of it, as I look back, I, I there wasn't time to emotionally connect with our patients, to take time to listen to them. But I think that I still showed compassion. I hope I did. I, they still knew that I, they knew I cared about them. I worried about them and that I was compassionate, but I couldn't show emotion. What good would that do? I, I couldn't break down in front of them. And, you know, you just, it, it's just part of being in the nursing profession, but that doesn't mean we're not human. We are human. And later, I, I fear, well, I won't say I fear, because there, there is help. For our nurses today, they're going to have post-traumatic stress from all of the uh, responsibility and the efforts and their contribution uh, today. Someday, you know, they're, they're going to stuff it. They have to, 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 get, to go home and make supper and to do the homework and get up again the next day and go back to work. Uh, we do that. But someday, when we compartmentalize that, it, it will come back to us in ways that we might need to de-stress. <laughs> and there's way, and uh, the good news for post-traumatic stress today, for those of us who have experienced it, is it's no longer, and it used to be, something to be ashamed of. I mean, when I came back from Vietnam, I, was, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't know I had PTSD. I just didn't want to talk about it. I kept it all inside. Later, when I was uh, struggling with the <laughs> signature set of symptoms, if you want to call them that, of PTSD, you know, avoidance, uh, hypervigilance, my struggles at work as a nurse when I had a flashback and I lost my confidence as a nurse and felt I couldn't go back to nursing because I was a failure. I talk about that in my book, and I think some nurses might relate to that. Wow. I'm relating to you so much right now, listening to the things that you're saying and uh, listening to that story you told. It's just absolutely overwhelming and shocking to hear. I'm very thankful that you uh, were able to Ex just explain that in such a detailed manner so that I, it really put me there. But then when you point out the, uh, so it's not really similar, but just the fact that that PTSD that you suffered and that all of the men and women who, who are in war suffer from, that is something that nurses are suffering from now and will continue to suffer for uh, the future to come because of this past year. It's something that we've always had to deal with when we've had to deal with patients in these very traumatic situations and sad situations, watching people die, watching family, watch their loved ones pass away and explaining, trying to comfort family members and then come home and not wanting to bring it home. So you stuff it down, like you said, and you don't talk about it. And you think that somehow that's being strong be because you're you're just not dealing with it because you you think you can compartmentalize and you can for a certain amount of time and then it affects your psyche without you even realizing it. Um, 
I really appreciate you saying that. It's a it's a wonderful way to sort of bridge the gap between what you went through and what nurses today are going through, literally going through right now. That is the most one of the most horrific stories I think I've ever heard. And I know that nurses listening to this because I've I work on a, I work in a level one trauma center and we a cardiovascular intensive care unit and we I have dealt with many COVID patients. I've worked on the actual ICU for COVID patients. And so I've been right there this whole past year. And it's been very frustrating for a lot of nurses. It's been, I've seen the nurses who work exclusively on that unit change over the past year. I've seen that in their eyes, something totally change about their personality. And I really hope that people listening to this, I hope that it will help them in the way that it's helped me just having this conversation with you right now and hearing that story. Something about it is very cathartic and very therapeutic to hear because it helps me to think, okay, imagine that. So vivid. The way you described that is just so vivid. And when I think about what we are currently going through, I guess what I'm trying to say is it helps me in a certain way to just think, we are all nurses. We all sacrifice ourselves to save other people every single day. And I get my hand slapped sometimes for, for saying this, but sometimes we don't go to the bathroom for several hours or we don't eat when we really should. I'm not saying we, I'm not condoning that. I never would condone that. But it is a reality that we do have a lot of staffing issues and they are compounded now because of COVID. They were always there. So I love that you related that the the story. Um, and I love that the nurses that are listening to this will hopefully be able to take that and, and comfort them in some strange way to feel a connection to nurses everywhere who've had to go through things like this and suffer through in such a strong way. There are thousands of nurses that listen to this podcast. And I think that they're just nurses in general because of their nature, you know, want to do something to help. And and, and there might be different, lots of different injustices or causes that people can be passionate about, but they don't know what do they, you know, what do they do? What would you say to someone who maybe they see injustice or they see a cause that they want to change to work toward changing? Is there any advice you can give to someone who's interested in trying to do something like what you did that may just seem absolutely impossible? Well, there is. And because when I look back on how did this country girl from a dairy farm end up in of course end up in the military that was a choice but then how did i take that i had never given a public speech i was not a politician i didn't know how to go to congress and get a bill passed i didn't know how to start a nonprofit i picked up the telephone and said i have something i think is important that should be done would you help and then i found lawyers i found people who had skills I did not have. I I found this wonderful woman who had a master's in business. She had an MBA. She had a master's in nursing. She had a master's in business. She had an MBA. Hmm. And and then she got a doctorate degree in nursing. And I, you know, I called her and she was also a colonel in the Army Nurse Corps. And I said, I need some help. I'm sure you have skills. I don't. (laughs) And so you surround yourself with, you, you contact people who, who are like-minded, and some want to help and some don't, and, but you, you, you look for the people who do, for, for your vision. If you have a vision or a passion, and then you step out of your comfort zone, 
But then you have to look at your family. I had to have support from my husband, my kids, my mother. When my mother retired, and she said, Diane, my contribution to what you're doing for nurses is I'm going to come and babysit the kids every time you have to be gone. She had no idea what that would entail. Mom came every flight. I was out and every speech, every time I was gone, mom came to babysit my four kids. So I did not have to worry. Grandma was there and my husband adored my mother. So they, they were like, it was fine. When I was gone, they were fine. And my husband kept mm. telling me when I wanted to quit, don't quit now. Too many, there wait, too many nurses, too many women are waiting for this. You can't give up now. So I had support at home. It would not have been worth my marriage. You have to ask yourself the hard questions. If this is going to destroy my relationship with the people I love, my spouse, you have to take a break from that and reassess. I kept going because I had support. I kept going because I called the American Legion, a powerful organization, and I said, how do I do this? Can you help? Well, this is how you do it. This is the first step. And then I wrote a plan. I wrote a, well, first step is go to my American Legion post and give a talk. I was quaking in my boots. I was terrified. I didn't know if they would throw things <laughs> at me or humiliate me and tell me I was stupid for going there in the first place. They embraced me. They were veterans who'd been there and understood. So you find like-minded people and, and then you get tough because you're going you're gonna to have a lot of mean things said to you. And people will da want to damage your reputation. They'll say things about you that aren't true because uh, they, they just don't want to see you succeed. And so I would just say to those who have a passion and feel like they're going to step out of their comfort zone to just go for it and see where it lands. And, and, and then don't give up. It takes perseverance. It takes tenacity. I tell a lot of nurses to get involved with, if you don't want the stress, it, being a combat nurse, being a trauma nurse, being a COVID nurse, being a critical care nurse, an ER nurse, and that's what most nurses are today, nurse anesthetists, these are stressful jobs. And how do we last in them for an entire career? And it's, it's not easy. We have to reassess and ask ourselves, is it worth it? But you don't have to be in critical care. Get involved in policy and politics. And it's at the policy level that we can affect change for our profession. Other, you know, the, the politicians, they're not going to write policies for us that we're going to like. We better get involved. You know, there's, there's the Association of Nurse Attorneys. Well, these nurse attorneys, hey, well, who better to be a nurse attorney than be in politics? <laughs> Become a nurse attorney and get in politics. Just some more degrees, right? Maybe you don't mm -hmm. have time for that. But getting involved mm -hmm. um, in, in areas in nursing that affect our profession, but that aren't so stressful. I had to give up critical care nursing. I, I could no longer do it. The flashbacks that I was having without the awareness that this was causing my lack of confidence and my fear of going to work. I had never been afraid to go to work. I mean, I was going to work in Vietnam every day when rockets were flying around and mortars and shrapnel and taking care of patients with horrific injuries. And I knew exactly what to do. There wasn't anything us nurses couldn't do in Vietnam by the time we left after a year. 
Um, but but when you start to feel at work that you're losing, it's a slippery slope. Like you're you're just too tired, or you I just can't do this anymore. I just it's too much. That's the time to really assess that you know um, maybe it's time to move into a different part of the of the profession that's um, where you can begin to excel in a different area. Um, uh, critical care. Uh, how many critical care nurses last till they're sixty-five? I don't know. It's a. There are not many of them. Uh, just from my been my experience, there aren't many. There uh, a lot of them uh, are very young. A lot of the critical care nurses are are. I'm not very young, but there there are a lot of critical care nurses that are very young. And but I, I went to I went to nursing school later in life, so I am an older nurse. Uh, that hasn't been a nurse uh, very long. So that's, uh, you know, I, I, there are some nurses who've been a nurse for, you know, 30 years, but they're very few. Well, let's talk about being that's, underappreciated. So many nurses today mm-hmm. and back then feel underappreciated. Now, whose fault is that? You know, we talked about esprit de corps in the military. The morale of the unit was critical. And my, the morale among my medics and my corpsmen to me was, if you have good morale, you have better performance. Let's just face it. That's leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, esprit de corps, good morale, hospital administrators, these managers, the people who are in charge, they need to be showing these nurses that they are appreciated and valued. And how are you doing? Is there anything we can do to help you? I lacked that. I didn't feel there weren't too many of those colonels and majors coming around to my units and tapping that di- lieutenant you know are you doing okay can we do anything what do you need i didn't hear much of that we really felt like we were on our own and that heavy burden weighed mm-hmm. on us every day and it weighed on us when we came home because that was an awful big burden to put on nurses the average nurse we were between 22 and 25 the majority of us we were way too young to have these big burdens, we didn't have the experience, and we needed the older, the more experienced to come around and say, you know, and and then help us feel also be appreciated. So there's that. But mm-hmm. then I also want to talk about: can we talk about the National Memorial Concert coming up? That's honoring nurses. Oh, please! This is so exciting, and I hope this is part of the listeners can hear this part. But the National Memorial Concert, this is their 32nd annual. It's every Sunday evening before Memorial Day. So this year it's May 30th. It's 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and it's an hour and a half, and it's by PBS. Normally it's live, but for obvious reasons, COVID restrictions, et cetera, and being on the National Mall, it's going to all be pre-taped. But they have three, it's to honor all military men and women past, present, future. It's patriotic. It's so beautifully done. And they they have chosen three sort of like categories to honor this year in keeping with their tradition of honoring veterans. This year, one of the categories is us, nurses, who served in the military during the Vietnam era and all honoring all the women who served, the 265,000 around the world, featuring all of us, specifically focusing on the nurses and they're using me as kind of the spokesperson through the efforts of the Vietnam Women's Memorial and who does that monument honor and so we'll be talking about that 
And honoring these uh, at the statue, the Vietnam Women's Memorial, I'm sure will be a key element. Uh, and you will see it in, in the uh, airing. And then the other is an, an incredible unit in, during Korea, an all-black ranger unit, all-black ranger unit, who went through terrible time during that war, but became heroes and excelled in their ability to uh, fit right in with our white soldiers, right? And all of our soldiers of color are men and women in uniform. So I think that's going to be very inspiring. And then uh, concentrating on the 2000 and what happened 20 years ago and the shock and awe and the Twin Towers coming down and the men in uniform who have been serving around the world since that time and a gold star family. Wow. We are coming yeah, up on 20 gold years star for families. that. 20 years it's been since this happened. So the attack on the United States of America and the fallout from that and how that affected our men and women in uniform and it affected them in serious ways. And so, and, and their families. And I think like the COVID, again, to talk about our nurses working with COVID and the families who suffer, when that patient dies, the families suffer and they're left to grieve. And how do we help them grieve? We're grieving ourselves. And then the families leave and we never see them again. And, and we, think, we think about those families. We can't help but think about them. And, and there they were like looking through a window or looking through plexiglass or not there at all. But we were that last. This is why I relate so much to these COVID nurses because they are the last person that patient saw when they were dying. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were their family. And, and the guilt that I felt for that in Vietnam, like I didn't want to be that boy's mother. It was like, why can't his family, why can't his mother be here as they're calling out for their mothers in their dying moments? So, yeah, that's the upcoming National Memorial Day concert. And it's always beautiful. For me, I love it because it's so inspiring. And it makes me feel proud of, of being a service member when that was something that was not allowed for us for so many years. And it's aired around the world, and it's on every hospital, all the ships around the world, naval bases, naval ships, Air Force and Army bases around the world, and throughout the United States. So, Well, Diane, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, and I thank you for your service and your dedication to seeing that the women's uh, women of Vietnam, all women of Vietnam were honored for their service. And I thank you for everything that you've done for nursing uh, specifically and the wonderful, encouraging words that you've given us today. And I'm just so excited to have um, to have had you on here to be able to have this conversation. such a privilege just to be able to talk to you. And I appreciate thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tina. So, David, this woman is quite an impressive person. So whenever her publicist emailed me, um, I, I do get a lot of emails about uh, this sort of thing where people are like, oh, I have this really interesting person. And would you like to have them on your show? And a lot of times I, what I, my response to that is I really don't do interviews. It's not the kind of podcast that I have. It's not an interview podcast. So I typically don't, I'll just you know, very nicely be like, mm, you know, unless they would want to come on as a medical professional and do you know, an episode, I probably will decline that. But when I read about her, I went and looked up 
a video of hers um, on YouTube where she was interviewed, I was like, absolutely, I have to, I have to do her as a good nurse story. Yeah, she's had quite a life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you guys heard, uh, she she is an amazing person, and all of the things that she's accomplished. When I was watching her talk about, you know, how she got into nursing and how she would, she was all, all you know, all that was going on during the Vietnam War, and she would watch the news and she would see bodies being carried out and she would look for nurses. She said, I would look for the nurses and I didn't see any. And then she went and just signed right up to go over there. It's the bravery is just unimaginable. Yeah. I'm so impressed with her. It reminds me of something that Mahatma Gandhi said. He said, be the change that you want the world to see. I'm mm -hmm. paraphrasing, of course, but mm -hmm. the idea that if you see something that's necessary, or if you want to be part of something, don't wait for it to happen. Mm -hmm. You be that change, and you change the world in the way that you can. Right. And that's exactly what she did. I think that uh, you bringing up that that quote, it's just so, it's very uh, cliche, and it's something that you see a lot on uh, social media, but it's <laughs> it's real. It's so, yeah. uh, it's so true. It, it's wasn't true. it wasn't cliche when... Gandhi actually said it, <laughs> but it, yeah. since then it has probably become so. <laughs> well, it's become cliche for a reason. Things become cliche yeah. for a reason, right? Because it's, it's true. true. It's so meaningful. Yes. It's very deep. You know, if you stop and really think about that, rather than just complaining about the way things are, if everyone who had the thought that I don't like the way this is, if everyone just tried to change and, and do something about it, imagine how much better the world would be. So, Absolutely. It's exactly what Diane Carlson Evans did, and I just how much I appreciate her is I can't even put into words. But um, I'm really thankful for her coming on the show and doing the interview, and happy to be able to promote her and her upcoming show that the memorial service that's going to be on on PBS. Yeah, good for her. David, remind him one more time where they can. Uh, find Nurse Papa. You can find Nurse Papa the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Just type in Nurse Papa. And you know, you can, if you want to contact me, you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And you can find us um, at our website at goodnursebadnurse.com or on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse or on Facebook or Twitter, very minimally at GMBM Podcasts. And I also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, Please be a good nurse.